The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, 1-11, which many of you know as the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Pam. Good morning, everybody. Uh, That includes those of you who are still on vacation, uh, tuning in with us online, and also everybody in the room. And it looks like we've got a a pretty full wiggles and giggles room over there because of our lack of kids programming this morning, which will resume next Sunday. But uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Good to be with you. Uh, If we haven't met yet, uh, if maybe... Trying Out Church is one of your New Year's things. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to uh, share a little, little bit about uh, this, this passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that was just read to us. So uh, before I do that, though, uh, Melanie Beasley, who just shared with our kids, is, uh, you, sure, you surely picked this up during her uh, words afterwards, she is our brand new kids ministry director at Christ Presbyterian Church, Old Hickory Boulevard, and as I understand it, Melanie will be available in the lobby afterwards, so you can greet her, say hello. Uh, she actually doesn't start until a few days from now, so she came in this morning from vacation to, to meet us for the first time, but um, great days ahead for CPC Kids. And uh, so, now I'd like to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 13, and um, I'll start the new year with Jim Gaffigan. Anybody know who Jim Gaffigan is? He's one of my favorite comedians. He's clean, and he's really funny. Uh, So, Jim Gaffigan, uh, recently somebody shared a clip uh, uh, of him actually just a couple of days ago with me, uh, in which he said to the crowd that he was speaking to, I am happy to say that I have kept my New Year's resolution. How many of us can say that at the end of a year? I'm happy to say that I have kept my New Year's resolution. I have eaten pasta every day this year. (laughs) 
Now, at the start of every year, we all take inventory on some level. And some of us dare to ask questions like, what's working? What's not working? Where can I be more healthy physically, emotionally, spiritually? How can I find greater health in my family and other relationships at work with my finances and the way that I organize my time? Now, even when things are going well, even when, like Jim Gaffigan, at the end of the year we can say, I've kept my New Year's resolution, oftentimes there's still something missing. So these past uh, few days, we had our, our daughter, uh, Abby, our oldest daughter, Abby, uh, and our son-in-law, our new son-in-law, Jeff, visiting us. Uh, and Jeff, the whole time, was, was, was doing puzzles. Uh, when he, whenever he had free time, uh, we discovered that he's a jigsaw puzzle master. And uh, the very last puzzle that he did, um, it was a frustrating thing because he put the whole thing together. It took him a couple of days, and there was one piece missing. Just one piece was missing after, after spending a couple of days. And, and I thought to myself, that's, that's kind of a metaphor for life, uh, where we have all these goals and all these aspirations because we're made for glory, as Mac shared with us in the confession time. We come from the Garden of Eden, which is a perfect world. We're headed toward the new heaven and new earth in Christ, which is also a perfect world, where we too will be like Christ and therefore perfect in ways that we're not today. And so because that's where we come from and that's where we're going, when things are incomplete, when anything is incomplete, it's like a puzzle that's, that has a missing piece or maybe several missing pieces. But this desire for completion that we carry with us in this world of sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, this desire for completion is not in our hearts because there's something wrong with us. It's because there's something right with us. We want to be complete. We want to be perfective, and, perfe- perfected, and that's what drives this impulse uh, during new seasons like a new year to take inventory. And so for the next few moments, though, what, what I want to do is try to zero our hearts in on uh, the thing that we don't want to fail at. And it's not whether or not we eat pasta every day, though that's a lovely goal if, if that's your thing. Love is where it's at. With it, we've got everything. Without it, we've got nothing. And, and, and so if there's an aim, uh, if there's an endeavor to latch our hearts onto in the coming year and every day of our lives, it, it, it it revolves around the question, what does it mean to be recipients of love? And what does it mean to be givers of love? Melanie touched on this. What does it mean to belong and to create belonging? And so the subject today uh, and the subject all year is love. Today, two questions. How do we define it and how does it define us? So how do we define it? Well, verse 13 says it's the greatest gift that God has given is the gift of love. God so loved the world that he gave. In verses 2 and 3, it says that without love, we have nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. Without love, we are nothing. And he unpacks this 
in a way that might be disturbing, especially in a professional culture such as the one in which we live, which is not unlike ancient Corinth, which was the climate into which Paul wrote this letter. Love, Paul wants us to know, is more than a skill set, and it's more than a code of ethics. So let's just take those one by one really quickly. It's more than a skill set. If, if we go all the way to the beginning of the passage, we see very quickly that being smart, being gifted, having impact on the world, these are all nice things. These are all worthwhile endeavors, but they're worthwhile secondary endeavors. Making your mark is a secondary endeavor, albeit a worthwhile endeavor. The ultimate endeavor is whether in success or failure, whether, whether we're winning or losing, the ultimate endeavor is love, receiving it and giving it. There's this line uh, in Forrest Gump uh, where Forrest says, I am not a smart man. And when Forrest says, I am not a smart man, instead of making you not like him, it actually draws you to him and makes you love him more by, by virtue of his, his simply saying in humility, I know who I am, I know how I'm created, I know my limitations, I'm not a smart man. But we look at somebody like Forrest Gump and we think that doesn't matter because you are a beautiful man and you are a kind man and you are a caring man and you're, you're a man who shows up, you're, you're a man who has character, you're a man who looks like the Beatitudes. You know, the church at Corinth is loaded with people who have high-level skills and high-level gifts. It talks about people who speak in the tongues of angels, who prophesy, who have the ability to fathom mysteries, who have uh, the, the, faith, uh, the kind of faith that can move mountains. They're poetic, they're prophetic, they're intelligent, discerning, passionate, sound in their doctrine, stacked with leaders and visionaries. They're a church on the move. Paul paints this picture, but he also says to them throughout the letter, your success is more cosmetic than it is real. You know, one thing we don't know oftentimes about this famous love chapter, which is read at weddings and, and you know, Thanksgiving gatherings and, and other times, this love chapter and all the attributes that, 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 that are listed, patience, kindness, etc., keeping no records of wrongs, this is one of the sharpest rebukes in the Bible. It's a list of all the things that Paul is noticing that the Corinthian Christians are not in their behavior and in their, the way that they conduct themselves and, and conduct their lives. Like the, like the tragic church at Laodicea that we read about in Revelation chapter 3, they have a reputation for being alive, a reputation for success, a reputation for power, a reputation for, for bringing it, a reputation for being a resource church. But the true verdict from heaven is you're naked, you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind. Because the Lord of glory stands at the door and knocks, and, and you're ignoring the knock because you're so obsessed with project self. You're so obsessed with things that ultimately will not matter, hollow endeavors. And so, if you want to know, sometimes people ask me, how can, how can I pray for you as my pastor? 
Uh, I would like to ask as many of you who are willing to pray for me, even if it takes you three seconds, as many days of this coming year, to pray for me three things. And these are also things, the three things that I'm praying for our community. Pray number one, as I will pray for you, that I would be a humble man. Pray number two, as I will pray for you, that I will be a holy man. And pray number three, as I will pray for you, that I be a helpful man to anyone that God puts in my path. Humble, holy, helpful, in honor of my predecessor, Wilson Benton, who had an acronym uh, or alliteration for everything, uh, learning from the Master Himself, the three H's, humble, holy, helpful. Love is more than a skill set. It's also more than a code of ethics. And it's interesting when we look at all the different um, virtues that Paul lists as he compares them to love, which is the supreme virtue. He has a list of liberal virtues uh, and a list of, of, of characteristically conservative virtues. Liberal virtues like giving all I have to the poor. That, that's a value for, for the more liberal person. That's not to say conservative people don't value giving to the poor. This isn't, we're not talking politics here. We're just, we're just talking Paul. If I give all I have to the poor, if I'm a mercy and justice person, in other words, or if I put on the more characteristically conservative virtues, like giving up my body to be burned, in other words, being so committed, so dogmatic about my faith that, 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 that I will not budge, I will not compromise on the truth as God has given it. It's a conservative virtue. Without love, neither of them matters. Without love, you're nothing, you have nothing, you gain nothing. Another tragic story is Judas. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. He served as treasurer. He kept the money bags for the disciples and Jesus. Like the other disciples, he traveled around as an itinerant preacher, preaching the gospel. People were healed under his ministry. People were converted to Christianity and to Christ under his ministry, but he was never converted himself, which is revealed in the tragic end of his life and his betrayal of the Lord himself. This is the scary thing about Judas. None of the disciples knew that he was the betrayer until he betrayed. They were all three years together, and and then Jesus is serving the Last Supper to his disciples, and Jesus announces, one of you is going to betray me, and none none of them knows it's Judas. All of them say, is it I, Lord? Is it going to be me who betrays you? Judas has the same optics, the same look, the same behaviors as all of the other disciples, but the one thing that he lacks is the love of God in his heart. So, here's the warning sign from Paul's perspective. If the love that you profess for God is not translating into love for your neighbor, you are in danger. You're in danger you know, he goes on in chapter 1 and chapter 12 to talk about how the Corinthians are mercilessly judging each other. Chapter 3, there are major divisions over minor theological issues. Chapter 5, there's, there's rampant and open adultery in the church. Chapter 6, there are frivolous lawsuits that, you're, you're, uh, you know, that you have against each other. Chapter 7, Uh, unlawful divorce, chapter 8, parading your Christian liberty in front of people with a troubled conscience. Chapter 11, the rich are ignoring 
the hunger and thirst of the poor, and so on. You know, Paul, Paul couldn't be more clear with the Corinthians. Like, you, you know, he, he gets all, you know, Apostle James on them. Faith without works, faith without a life that demonstrates itself to be different than the culture around it is dead. It's not faith. And then he points them to the attributes of love. You know, all these things in verses 4 through 7 that the Corinthians were languishing at. As if to say to them, you're putting all of your energy into self-actualization. When, when, when you, you need to understand that, that becoming a successful person is not about self-actualization, it's about self-donation. Loving the Lord your God with everything that you are, loving your neighbor as yourself. And when you lead with things like, you know, again, verses 4 through 7, patience, kindness, humility, forgiveness, encouragement, your life will become the kind of life that participates in the work of God that shakes the earth. The whole pattern of Scripture, though, and this is really important, and this is what Paul does even with the Corinthians, is, is Scripture puts indicatives before the imperatives. Okay, so what, what on earth? What does that mean? It's like an English lesson or something, sort of. Indicatives are statements of who you are. You're beloved. You belong. You're a child of God. You're forgiven. You're blameless in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done. You're destined for glory. Indicatives. And then after the indicatives, there's a really important sequence here, come the imperatives. Therefore, on the basis of who you are and who you've been declared to be, this is how you shall then live. Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery and delivered you from, from the mighty hand and oppressive hand of Pharaoh. Now, here are ten commandments for you to follow on the basis of that to help you be a reflection of my character in the world. Chapter 1 here in 1 Corinthians, it starts this way. Paul, to the church of God, sanctified, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace. You are, he uses this word, guiltless in Christ. That's chapter 1. That's the very beginning. And then for the rest of the letter, he addresses all of their guilt. You are guiltless, therefore you have a safe place now to talk about your guilt. Guiltless in the sight of God, covered, cleansed, not condemned. Now let's talk about the train wreck that you are. Let's talk about Mac Purdy's favorite catechism question that reminds us that we are corrupt in every part of our being. And therefore, prime candidates for the grace and mercy of God. John chapter 8, the woman's caught in the act of adultery and Jesus' first words to her are, I do not condemn you. Now, on the basis of that, Leave your life of sin. Grace and love, therefore ethics. The kindness of God, therefore repentance. Why is this sequence so essential? Because if, if we reverse the sequence, we, we get into the mindset of the sheriff in Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men, where the sheriff says, I always thought when I got older that God would sort of come into my life in some way. He didn't. I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion about me that he does. Becoming aware of your not enoughness. There are really only three 
things you can do with that. You can either descend into self-loathing like the sheriff does here, or you can look to project self or self-actualization to, to patch up your lack of righteousness through success and achievement so you can tell yourself, at least I'm this or at least I'm that. At least I make this kind of money or at least I have these morals and at least I have, you know, this record of, 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 of attending church or faithfulness to my spouse or what have you. You, you, you look for something other than Jesus to to name you and to, to give you your identity and your security, but it's all like pasta every day. It, it may be delicious momentarily, but, it, but, but the long-term effect is, you know, the pear shape um, of a soul that, that it gives you. you know, both self-loathing and self-actualization as a response to your not-enoughness will turn your soul into the shape of a big fat pear. But how do you get the the tapered David Filson shape where where the shoulders are out here and the waist is down here? You let love define you. You can't just define love. You've got to let love define you. You Modern love goes something like this. Webster calls it a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection. Shaka Khan agrees. I feel for you. Therefore, I think I love you on the basis of that. Tina Turner, what's love but a second-hand emotion? Pat Benatar got it right, though. Pat Benatar said love is a battlefield. Okay, our intergenerational reality is showing itself. (laughs) Everyone over 50 says battlefield. Everyone under 50 says, who's Pat Benatar? So the word Paul uses here is agape. Which is the same word that Paul uses, or that Jesus uses when Jesus says, I want you to agape your enemies. I want you to agape people who mistreat you and persecute you and say all kinds of false, demeaning things about you. I want you to agape them. I want you to love them. Because that's exactly and precisely how I loved you when you were behaving toward me in those ways. When you were resisting me, when you were stiff-arming me, when you were keeping a distance from me, when you were running to Project Self, in order to patch up your own sense of insufficiency, that's how I treated you. I gave you my love. God demonstrates His own agape toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's non-discriminating. It's the kind of love that Jesus offers to those who are beloved like Forrest Gump and unlovely like like Jenny at her worst. Running away from love, and yet love keeps chasing after her, right? Words like tenacious, resilient, gutsy, selfless, full of grace… These are words that describe the kind of love that God is calling His people to after giving that same kind of love to His people. You know, agape love is counterculture. The true test of, of, of the degree to which agape love resides in our heart is when we know God is calling us to love somebody that we don't like in a relationship that we don't enjoy when we don't feel warm affection, 
Some call it a cruciform love or a cross-like love. Example from Paul's words here. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep a tally. Love doesn't fester and meditate and and create caricatures of other people on the basis of the very worst thing about them. Love doesn't do that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, Tim Keller in his marvelous new book called Forgive, it's his book on forgiveness, the forgiveness of God and then how we forgive one another. He says this, the essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. In other words, you feel hurt in a relationship. It never becomes your goal to exact a pound of flesh to get even. Or maybe two pounds of flesh in order to get ahead. Forgiveness absorbs pain instead of inflicting it. But how do we become those people? How do we, as Jesus said, love our enemies even more than our enemies love each other, even more than our enemies love themselves? We have to realize that that before we we can even begin to think about going on this kind of love endeavor toward other people, we have to realize that it's, it's the climate that we, it's the umbrella that's over us. His banner over me is love. He brought me to His banqueting table and His banner over me is love. You know, Paul writes from a place of self-awareness here as he ministers the love of Christ to the Corinthians. Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will love me out of this? And then Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no separation from His love. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from His love. Romans 8 is His own answer to to His own dilemma in Romans 7. The love of Christ that does not condemn you, that, that, that does not threaten you with separation and rejection, but that draws you in. You know, the first step toward loving is realizing first and foremost that all you need is nothing. As some anonymous person has said, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. And and when you recognize that that is your standing before God, that the one thing that He will accept from you is nothing, that the one thing he He will embrace that you give to Him is your need, which then activates His mercy and activates His kindness and activates His agape love to draw you in. Until until we go through that process again and again and again, we'll never become lovers. We will always be keeping score. Nothing in my hands I bring. And so really what Paul is talking about as we approach the finish line here is redirecting our focus and energy. You know, there's this great book, this wonderful, inspiring book that uh, our friend Bob Goff wrote called Love Does, and that's absolutely true. Love is an active thing. And Bob's book gives a lot of wonderful examples of what that looks like. But before love can do, love has to be. 
Before we can say love does and sustainably act on it, we, we have to understand that love is before love does. Love is a verb, but, but even more than it's a verb, it's a person. God is love. Christ is love. And the love of Christ is what constrains us. And it, it's that patient, kind, humble, not resentful, full of truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, never failing, right? This, this is both a rebuke to the Corinthians and a description of Jesus Christ. It's both of those things. These are all attributes of Jesus Christ. And share this occasionally. The theologians would say that there are two kinds of attributes that God has. There are the incommunicable attributes, or you could call them the omnis. These are the attributes that we don't, that God does not pass on to us. His omniscience, where He knows everything. His omnipresence, where He's everywhere all the time. His omnipotence, where He is all-powerful and He can do all that He wants to do according to His holy will and according to His character. But then there are also communicable attributes, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all things that describe Jesus Christ, just like the list uh, in verses 4 to 7 here, describe Jesus Christ, communicable. Where else do we hear that word? We hear it in hospitals and doctor's offices and, and when, um, you know, the, the National Institute for Health gets up and, and gives a report to the nation, we, we talk about communicable viruses. Communicable things are things that you catch if you get close enough to catch it, to inhale the breath, to, to, to ingest the saliva. And w- essentially what Paul is talking about is you, you've got to get the breath of God in you. You've got to eat and drink after Jesus with that which has been prepared by His communicable, contagious hands, from His communicable, contagious heart. You want to be like Jesus, in other words. Stop trying to be like Jesus. How's that for a New Year's resolution? I resolve to stop trying to be like Jesus. And redirect all of that energy and invest it into being with Jesus. Because it's in being with Him that we become like Him. There's no bypass road around being with Him to become like Him. You know, Christianity is utterly distinct from any and every other philosophy and religion in that you get the well-done, good, and faithful servant before you even start your journey. Remember what Paul says, at the beginning there is no condemnation. Or to the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. Now let's talk about how you're going to live your life. Indicatives before imperatives. You get the blessing, you get the favor, you get the approval at the beginning of your journey. Therefore, it's not earned. He doesn't condemn you. Therefore, leave your life of sin Stop trying to be like Christ. Start investing that energy in being with Christ. And you'll probably have a great year, maybe even better than if you'd eaten pasta every single day. Speaking of eating and drinking, let's pray together as we approach the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you've taken every burden that we feel and pulled it off of our shoulders and and lifted it off of our hearts. And our only job is to recognize that you've done that. 
and to lean into the fact that you've done that, that you are the burden lifter, that you say, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. What a great invitation after an exhausting holiday season and at the beginning of a new year that that for many of us probably feels ominous as we look at tasks ahead of us, as we consider our anxiety about the economy and politics and relationships and anything else that might burden these dear men, women, and children in this room, including myself, Lord, I, I thank You that You are one who says to us, come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you say that a full 17 chapters before you say, go for Me in the Great Commission. And so, Lord, we want to obey You in that right now and enter Your rest by coming to You at Your table. Would You take this bread and this cup? Would You consecrate it? Would You set it apart? Even though it's physically bread and and physically the fruit of the vine that nourishes our bodies, would You also in a very real way with Your real presence with us, Jesus, uh, through Your Word, through Your Spirit, through Your community, through Your church, would You nourish us in our spirits as well, that we would allow the burden to be lifted off of our shoulders and off of our hearts, that we might enter into Your rest and then become the best doers that we've ever been out of that rest. Father, remind us that Sabbath doesn't come after the work week for us. It comes as the very first day of the work week. We rest unto our labors even as You worked unto Your own rest, Lord. We give You thanks for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.